Welcome to Prairie View. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Last week, as we started looking in the Gospel of Luke, we saw an introduction to Jesus' ministry. In the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus announces to everyone that he is the anointed one of Isaiah 61. He announces that he's the one sent to proclaim good news to the poor, the one sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, a lot of people received his words with wonder. It says they were in awe of the gracious words coming from his mouth. But you also have to think that others would have been skeptical. I mean, how can he back up a claim like that? I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? We've known him since he was a kid. He hasn't proven anything. Why should we believe him? Well, his credibility is seen in the passages following. Jesus casts out demons. He heals illnesses. He cleanses lepers. He even goes so far to forgive sins. And all the while, in the midst of it, news is starting to spread. People are hearing what's happening, and people are following James, John, and Simon are called to be fishers of men. Jesus is even letting tax collectors like Levi join in. But there's not just a group of followers starting to form. There's another group as well. There's a group of opponents, and they're starting to draw battle lines. Now today we pick up where we left off. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, even more people have joined in. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, another James, another Simon, two guys named Judas. A lot of confusion in this group, I would think. Maybe they called them by their last names. But you add these people with James, John, Peter, and Levi, the ones who have already been called, and you get 12. And these 12 have been especially commissioned to serve as Jesus's inner circle. And so far, Jesus hasn't had a hard time Finding followers, has he? People have seemed pretty eager to jump on the Jesus bandwagon up to this point. And why wouldn't they? Incredible things are happening. And sure, the religious leaders are starting to become a little bit of a headache. And yes, the folks back in Nazareth haven't always been warm and welcoming to Jesus. But other than that, Jesus has been the toast of the town. Who wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? Well, today is when things start to change a little bit. We start to see a shift in the tone of Jesus' ministry. We start to see that Jesus isn't just about cool, flashy miracles. He's got some truly shocking things to say. It was shocking to them back then, and it will be just as shocking to us today. And what he says all revolves around what it means to be a part of Jesus's community. What it is that sets Jesus's people apart from everyone else. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 736. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, I'm extremely grateful for this church and these people uh, just sitting in the chairs and and hearing people's voices as they worship you uh, is just an incredible experience. And I'm thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are here this morning 
worshiping you and hearing from your word, and I'm just thankful for the privilege that I have um, of preaching from it. Father, I'm thankful for uh, the mission that you've given to us, not just in Fishers, but around our entire community, all the surrounding places, uh, around our state and our country and our world. I pray that we would be devoted to your mission, uh, regardless of what it might cost us. God, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your patience, uh, that we can call you our Father, as Jesus will tell us this morning. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, everything we read today in Luke chapter 6 is actually one big sermon from Jesus. And the sermon is primarily directed at his own disciples, those people who have already decided to follow him. However, there's also a very large, a very diverse crowd of people there who can listen in too. So we'll look at the sermon one piece at a time, starting in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So, Jesus starts out by claiming that the poor, the hungry, the grieving, the persecuted, a.k.a. the outcasts, the broken, those people are actually blessed. He pronounces woe on the wealthy, the full, the happy, the admired, a.k.a. the folks who have it all together. Now step back for a moment and consider just how utterly bizarre a claim like that is. The claims that Jesus just made are unconventional at best. I mean, back then and even today, this just doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. So that got me thinking this past week. What would a version that makes sense in the real world sound like? A version of verses 20 through 26. Well, here's what I came up with. Woe to you who are poor, hungry, and weeping, for you must have made some really bad decisions. Woe to you who are poor, hungry, and weeping, you must not be living right. Woe to you who are poor, hungry, and weeping, you must not have enough faith that God wants you to prosper. Woe to you who are poor, hungry, and weeping, you know, you probably deserve what you're getting. Woe to you who are persecuted on account of the Son of Man. Maybe you're taking your faith a little too seriously. Woe to you who are persecuted on account of the Son of Man. Maybe you should make your faith a little more relevant and up to date with the times. Then you won't be so excluded. Woe to you who are persecuted on account of the Son of Man. After all, acceptance by the majority, well, that's what life is all about. And blessed are you who are rich, full, happy, and admired, because God is obviously pretty impressed by you. Blessed are you who are rich, full, happy, and admired, because you've really made something of yourself. 
Blessed are you who are rich, full, happy, and admired because you don't need anyone's help at all. When you really think about it, Jesus' version, it seems like the total opposite of how our world works. It seems like the total opposite of what we typically consider blessed. The standards, the values, they're all different. And maybe that's the whole point. Maybe the whole point is that his kingdom, it's not like the kingdoms we see around us. The definition of what it means to be blessed, the values, the priorities, the barometers of success, those two kingdoms don't have anything in common. Man's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. And according to Jesus, those who embrace the ways of the world, those who think that man's idea of kingdom is better, man's idea of kingdom has it right, well, those people, they will find Jesus' idea of kingdom completely ridiculous. But those who see Jesus' kingdom as something better, those who see Jesus' kingdom as the way things really should have been all along, well, they have a reward in eternity. Even if in the kingdoms of man, they are the lowest of the low. Pretty shocking so far. It's certainly a little bit weird. Maybe not what they expected when they went to hear this new Jesus guy preach. But Jesus is just getting warmed up. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I want you to remember the second half of verse 35 and verse 36. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Verse 37. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now you think about it, verses 20 through 26, the start of Jesus' sermon. Some people may have liked that. Yeah, it's a little bizarre, it's a little weird, but some people, they would have liked it. I mean, if you're one of those poor people, if you're one of the hungry, the weeping, the persecuted, then verses 20 through 26, well, that would sound pretty good to you. You're sitting there and thinking, you know, this Jesus guy, he gets it. 
We might not be in charge right now, but man, oh man, one day our enemies are going to get what's coming to them and we are going to be on top and I can't wait for that day. Well, before anyone gets too comfortable with his sermon, Jesus begins to preach in a way that no one is going to like. No one. Rich, poor, hungry, full, weeping, laughing, persecuted, admired, None of them like what he says next. I mean, love your enemies. Love your enemies. If your enemy slaps you on the right cheek, well, that's an embarrassing, humiliating showing of dishonor. And we're not just talking about insults. We're talking about a physical, public confrontation. Well, what does Jesus say? Stand your ground? Nope. Put up your dukes? He says, don't resist. And not only that, offer the other cheek. Hey, you missed a spot. Got my left cheek, too. What about the one who takes your coat? I mean, here we're talking about stealing. That's a serious offense. And what does Jesus say? File a lawsuit? Nope. Chase him down? Get it back? Nope. Give him your shirt, too. If he stole a coat... He might need a shirt as well. Give to everyone. This one stuck with me this week. The reason this one stuck with me is because I know I am, and I'm sure a lot of us are, really good at justifying disobedience here. We're really good at justifying this one. You know, I say things like, you know, I saw something on the news about how a majority of the beggars out there are really scammers. So no, I'm not going to give. I say things like, you know, they'll probably just use what I give them to buy drugs or alcohol. So I'm not going to give to them. You know, sometimes we claim that we would be more generous if there was a way to avoid the scammers. We claim that we would be more generous if we could make sure that what we give is actually going to help people instead of enabling destructive habits. We say that. But then how often do we actually step back and think deeply and creatively about ways to do that? More often than not, our concerns about giving to everyone who asks, they end up being excuses to not give to anybody. Jesus says, when you give to all who ask, expect nothing in return. Think about that. Jesus totally overturns the prevailing economics of his day, the economics of our day. He overturns the patronage system that was so common back then that really we operate with too. Back then and today, it's all about giving to get. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It was all about leverage. It was all about accumulating people who owed you favors. And as you would expect, a system like this is absolutely ripe for abuse and exploitation of those who have less to offer in return. And yet Jesus makes it crystal clear. All of the ways that this kingdom on earth works, 
All the things that mark this world, the way you treat your enemies, the way they tell you to treat the poor, the way that they tell you to only give if there's something that you can get back in return. Jesus makes it very clear that this is not his way. And if Jesus's followers operate by these kingdoms standards, then there's nothing unique about Jesus's followers at all. And that's kind of the whole point of the sermon. Jesus's community functions in a way. That makes us stick out. We function in a way that makes us different. We function in a way that makes us distinctive from the world around us. So love. Do good. Give. Don't sit back wasting your time judging who's worthy of your love, who's worthy of your compassion, who's worthy of your generosity. Instead, let mercy reign supreme because after all, your father... Yes, God, your father, you can call him your father. Your father is merciful to the ungrateful and the evil. And you were once ungrateful and evil. And I was once ungrateful and evil. And God was merciful to you and God was merciful to me. So who are you to withhold your mercy? Are you starting to squirm yet? Hearing all of this? If so, good. Because that seems to be exactly what Jesus had in mind. Verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus' community is weird in the way that they view blessing. We're weird in the way we treat our enemies. We're weird in the way that we give to the poor, expecting nothing in return. But we're also weird in the ways that we relate to one another. Let's say hypothetically, you see a speck in your brother's eye. Your brother is guilty of some kind of sin. Well, what does Jesus say to do? Talk to him about it. Bring it to him. Confront him about it. But before you do, look in the mirror. Check your own eye, too. Be reminded that you, too, are guilty of sin. This is the closest Jesus ever comes to saying, check yourself before you wreck yourself. But that's pretty much what he says. Now, there's a selfish part of us that loves to take this passage and use this passage against anyone who would dare call me out on sin. How dare you call me out on sin? I may have a speck, but you, you have a log. Don't point out my speck. That hurts my feelings. But here's the thing. We often ignore the last part of those verses. Jesus says, yes, take the log out of your own eye. By all means, look in the mirror. Be aware of your own sin and address it. But then you will see clearly to take out the speck. That is in your brother's eye. 
This passage isn't about dismissing accountability. This passage isn't about us being allowed to basically get away with any sin without our brothers and sisters in Christ saying anything to us about it. That's not what it's about. This passage is indicting our uncanny ability to notice the sins of others far more than our own. Now you think about that and think, okay, that's a little bit weird. That's a little bit different, but it doesn't seem really as extreme as the other parts of the sermon. The whole loving your enemies, give to all who ask of you, expect nothing in return. What makes this so different? Well, if you think about it, in our world today, the idea of real relationships seems completely and utterly foreign. And by real relationships, maybe we're talking about the kinds of relationships where brothers and sisters in Christ actually hold each other accountable. These days, so many of us are guilty of thinking that if someone tells us that we're doing something wrong, if someone confronts us with our sin, then that means that they hate us. That's not a real relationship. That's not how real relationships work. And the relationships that Jesus' followers are called to have with one another, they are real relationships. The kinds of relationships where we refuse to ignore each other's specks and logs. The kinds of relationships where we actually want people to come to us and expose our sin so that we can address it. That's weird. We don't condone every action just to avoid rocking the boat or just for the sake of keeping the peace. We look at our own sin honestly. We address each other's sin honestly. We help each other see the blind spots of our sin that are all too common. And we humbly and lovingly press each other on towards godliness. That's weird. Now think about it. All these people gathered to hear Jesus, different backgrounds, different ages. Do you think any of them are starting to walk away yet? Maybe some of them are thinking, you know, the miracles, those were pretty cool. The miracles were neat. The casting out of demons and healing illnesses and cleansing lepers and, and even forgiving sins. That was some pretty cool stuff. I don't know about this, though. I can get on board with miracles, seeing some flashy things happen. But I don't know if I want to sign up for all this stuff. Well, Jesus seems to anticipate that not everyone is going to stick with him after they hear this. For some people, it will simply prove too extreme. It will simply prove too radical. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus makes something very clear. Those who do stick around, those who do obey, those who do bear good fruit, it's not just a matter of behavior modification. Something deeper. Something bigger has happened to that person. That person at their very roots is different. Their heart's not the same as it was before. And as a result, they bear fruit. But wait a minute. I mean, can't people fake it? I mean, we all have stories of people who externally followed all the rules. People who externally bore wonderful fruit, but internally were eventually exposed as rotten. Can't people fake it? Well, yeah, they can. But they can't fake it forever. Because when pressure comes, when hardship arrives, when storms come against houses, that true heart, those true roots, that true character, they're seen. Moments of pressure, moments of hardship, like, for example, just thinking... Hypothetically, when following Jesus leads to poverty and hunger and mourning and persecution. Maybe moments of pressure when an enemy slaps you on the cheek or when an enemy steals your coat. Maybe when someone you lended money to doesn't return it. Maybe when a fellow believer confronts you of your sin and everything inside you tells you to put up your defenses. And justify what you did. The person whose heart is made new. The person whose roots have been strengthened by the grace of God. Jesus says they are like a house built on a rock. That person can't be shaken when those storms come. And when those storms come, even then, they'll bear fruit. But others, those who Jesus says like him enough to call him Lord, but don't like him enough to actually obey him as Lord? Jesus says those people have nothing to look forward to but destruction. It's a lot to take in. It's overwhelming. It's humbling. It can even be discouraging. And to be honest, you hear a sermon like this, you hear a passage like this, and it sounds like a lot of rules. It sounds like extremely heavy demands. And sometimes you can't help but ask, okay, where's the grace in that? What's the motivation for all this? Well, maybe it's in those verses I told you to remember. End of verse 35, verse 36. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. When we read something like this, what gives us strength to stand When following Jesus so obviously demands so much of us. What gives us any hope when we inevitably fall short? When we fail to love our enemies? When we fail to give to everyone who begs to us? When we fail to give without expecting something in return? What gives us any hope in those moments? What reassures us 
that we are on the right path when following Jesus goes so upstream compared to every message and every value that the world sends our way. Where's the hope? Where's the grace? Where's the strength? It's in that statement. Be merciful as your father is merciful. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Followers of Jesus have a reward in eternity. We have a God that we can call our Father. And the God that we can call our Father is merciful. And ultimately, maybe more than anything else, that's what makes God's people distinctive. When people look at us and ask, why in the world we would live this way? Why in the world would you love your enemies? You're just going to end up being a doormat. Why in the world would you give to all who beg of you? You're just going to get taken advantage of. Why in the world would you give and expect nothing in return? Why would you let people confront you with your sin and not get defensive and actually thank them for it? Why in the world would you live that way? We can look at those people in the eye and say, I love my enemies because God loved his enemies. And I was once one of them. I can give to all who beg because I was once a beggar and God gave to me. I can give and expect nothing in return because God gave to people who had nothing to offer in return. That's why we live this way. We have a reward in eternity. We have a God who lets us call him Father. And we have a God who is merciful. That's why we stick out. That's why we're different. May we be distinctive as Jesus' followers. No one ever said it'd be easy. No one ever said it'd be practical. No one ever said it would make sense in the eyes of people who don't know Christ. And yet that's the sermon that Jesus gives us. That's the challenge that Jesus gives us. May we be merciful because our Father is merciful. Let's pray. Father, it's kind of a roller coaster of emotions and reactions to read passages like these. Some of the verses we read and we rejoice, and some of the verses we read and we're confused, and some of the verses we read and we're convicted, and some of the verses we read and they are comforting, and some of the verses that we read, they hit us like a brick in the face. And God, I pray that you would give us the humility, that you would give us the willingness to accept your word regardless of what effect it has. Thank you for your word, the challenging portions like this. God, I pray that you would help us to stick out. That we as your people would look different from the world around us. That we would be distinctive. I pray that our lives would be different than those who don't know you. I pray that your love would be felt by our enemies. That your generosity would be felt by those who beg from us. I pray that we would hold each other accountable and drive each other on towards godliness.
And I pray that we as a church would be like a house built on the rock, that we as individuals, our lives would be built on the rock, the rock of your grace that changes us from the inside out, that enables us to bear fruit for your glory. God, thank you for your son Jesus, who didn't just do miracles, who taught and would eventually die and rise from the grave and ascend to be with you and return again. God, may we obey him this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.